Hello and welcome to So You Think You Can Rule Persia, the podcast where we rate and review all the kings of Persia from Diochis to Yazdegerd III. I'm Serial and my pronouns are they, them. And I'm Umberto and my pronouns are he, him. Okay, so welcome to episode 22, which is to say the episode on Antiochus I, Soter. So, do you know what Soter means? What can we prophesize from his nickname? I have no idea. It's too short a word for me to try and see if it has Greek or Latin roots. Fair. It reminds me of Suter, but that's probably not it. That's just what it... No, it's unrelated. Okay. So Soter is Greek for savior. Oh. So let's get to see if if it's ironic or not. (laughs) Honestly, it would be very funny if it were ironic. (laughs) Like, I don't think people tend to do that. Although, I'm fun, pretty though. sure there's a couple of kings here and there whose name has gone, passed on down the generations as a kind of a joke by the people. Yeah, that's reasonable. But okay, you need to remind me where we ended. According but, to the yes. few, very few notes that I have in my <laughs> notebook, I know Soloquus was, you know, the cavalry captain and he's been, you know, he's just been there moving strings the whole time. Yes. Uh, I remember he was from the same year, like from the same generation as Alex the Great. Mm -hmm. But then I can't remember. I remember he didn't get to be king. He got murdered before that because he was scheming too much. And eventually that, that came to bite him. Or did he just die? Or did he just pass? I can't remember. Sort of. So Did you just retire? Let's rewind. And then never get he to... He tried to retire and then was murdered, yes. Yeah. Eh, see, I was correct. <laughs> <laughs> so to recap what happened in the last, like, four episodes, Alexander the Great destroyed the Achaemenid Empire, then died without a succession plan. The empire exploded for mm-hmm. 30 years. We know this. The games made the strongest win. Yes. And out of the ashes emerged the Seleucid Empire, with Seleucus at its head, controlling pretty much most of the Asian part of Alexander the Great's empire. Right. Because we had, like, four different kings, right? The empire broke into four parts. Ptolemy has one of them. Seleucus has another. Yeah, we'll recap that at the end, because there are other parts that Ah, broke Sorry, sorry. Just trying to remember. Yeah, so Seleucus took most of the Asian bit... Managed to, you know, build some cities, was cool, you know, created an actual stable empire. Yeah, true, true. Then in the last years of his life, he went over and managed to conquer Macedon. So he tried to return home for the first time in 50 years. But, as you mentioned earlier, Ptolemy's elder son, Ptolemy Karaunos, hmm. killed Seleucus and made himself king of Macedon. As you do. So right now, the situation that we can see are three main kingdoms. So there is the Seleucid Empire, which, again, the Asian part of the empire. Right. The Ptolemaic Kingdom, which controls Egypt and some attached territories, but also a series of little coastal fortresses all along the Mediterranean, because Ptolemy has the strongest fleet of everyone's. And then in the west, there's the Kingdom of Macedon, currently under Ptolemy Karaunas' rule. So those are the three main kingdoms we're going to have until, basically, Rome comes and knocks everybody to the ground because that's what Rome does. So we only have three kingdoms. Yes, three big kingdoms. There's small things in the edges, but those are the big okay, ones. Okay, okay. 
So yeah, the last time we left with Seleucus being murdered before he could consolidate his uh, new territories in the west, so the western half of Anatolia and Macedon. So let's have a look at what his son Antiochus ended up doing. Antiochus was born in 324 as the son of Seleucus and Apama. Yeah. And Apama, who is the Sogdian princess that Seleucus married at the great mass marriage of Susa by yes. Alexander. I remember this. I actually have notes about this. Nice. It's like the one functional couple we've encountered so far. Yeah, true. Which <laughs> probably explains Cyrus why and, I have her name yeah. written down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so little baby Antiochus grows up, half Macedonian, half Sogdian, as Alexander IV was supposed to be, but didn't live long enough to succeed. Well, you know. And Antiochus manages to grow up at the side of his father and helps him out during the Great Civil Wars. And in 301, at the Battle of Ipsus, which defeated Antigonus finally, we're told that Antiochus was put in command of Seleucus's cavalry. Hmm. During the battle, Antiochus's cavalry retreated and drew away the Antigonid cavalry, which kept all this cavalry set up away from the main battle so that Seleucus and the allies could actually win. So some historians actually suggest that this wasn't an actual running away, but it was just like a pre-planned thing that Antiochus and Seleucus decided together to, you know, pretend to run away so their cavalry goes away and doesn't bother us Mm -hmm. so we can win the actual battle. Mission accomplished. Strategy. Now that an empire has been established, Antiochus starts to co-govern with his father a lot. Antiochus is made co-king and given the eastern half of the empire to administer because, well, that's where his mom is from. He has those family ties and all that, so he does quite a good job there. Also, in 292, Antiochus marries his stepmother, Stratonike. Right. If you remember that whole thing. Um... Because... Essentially, Seleucus married this woman who was 40 years younger than him. Yes, yes, and she liked Antiochus better, and then eventually someone told... Well, you know, Antiochus (laughs) liked her, and someone told Seleucus, hey, maybe you should, you know, have your, like, let your child, your your son, you know, have the young woman for himself. And nobody asked her, because who would, you know, she's a woman, so... eh. Yeah. Yeah, based on the inscriptions, it looks like she wasn't super fond of this, but, eh, you know, I wouldn't either, so fair enough. Because the official version of the story is, yes, Antiochus, madly in love, almost starved himself to death, but practically it seems that Seleucus wanted to avoid having any more male heirs to mess up the succession, and actually wanted to secure it by having Antiochus get married, and also wanted Stratonike away from the West because she's the daughter of Demetrius, the guy who was always causing trouble and oh, yeah. lost terribly pretty much every time. But anyway, here we have Antiochus off in the East, and now he's governing. He is administering his side of the kingdom. Hmm. So first of all, he settles his official residence on the new city of Seleucia on the Tigris which is basically Babylon's new twin. So Antiochus builds up the city, helps it grow from, you know, a minor military encampment, which is what it started as, into an actual large city that is useful for trade and administration and all that. So Mm -hmm. it is growing larger like, you know, Alexandria and Egypt is. 
But for the majority of his time, it looks like Antiochus preferred living off in Bactria, where his mother had family ties, and that seems to be where he spent most of his time as co-ruler, sort of administering the frontier of the empire and checking that everything was in order. Hmm. And yeah, being there on the frontier, he actually seemed to have commissioned a few expeditions to explore the area and find out what happens past where the maps stop. You know, is there anything we should be concerned about or excited right. about? We don't know. So he has one large expedition into the steppe to figure out how far does this go, and one in the Caspian Sea to try and see, you know, does this connect to the ocean at the edge of the world? Is this just a lake? What happens? <laughs> and yeah, they try to figure something out. They don't figure out too much more, but it's nice to have the information. Yeah, well, they're getting, you know, they tried. You start somewhere. They're trying, yeah. Also, he spent up some time trying to build up the defenses against the steppe people, so he uses a lot of the old Achaemenid defenses on the border and refortifies them and builds a lot of Antiochs, of course, because his name is Antiochus, on the border to sort of settle this region and give some forts to avoid the nomads from invading past the borders into the farmland. Mm -hmm. So everything is going great, he's happy in the east, and he receives news from his dad that is saying, hey, I'm giving you all of Asia. I'll retire in Macedon. Maybe come over to Antioch on the Mediterranean so that you can rule basically all of the empire from there. I mean, nice. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> nice job offer. However, when Antiochus is packing his bags, getting ready to head west and redo all of this, he receives news that oh, wait, your dad has been murdered. Oh, God. And yeah. you're the only ruler of the empire, and also the western half of the empire is kind of chaotic because nobody really knows who's in charge. Knock-knock. Eh. Trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yes, knock-knock. Hey, it's the west. It's trouble again. Oh, damn. Oh, damn, the west. Because we have explosions everywhere. Oh. First of all, he receives news of a revolt in Syria. It's unclear who was revolting and why. Oh, oh, great. Well, some, some <laughs> revolt. Some, you know, something uh -huh. going on. Yeah. There are two options. One is that it could just be a native revolt, trying to take this chance to cast off the Greeks from their land, which is an option. Another option is actually that it's Ptolemy II, who is pharaoh of Egypt right now, who is trying to support his brother, Ptolemy Karaunos, who had murdered Seleucus, by causing chaos for the Seleucid Empire hmm. and making sure it's unstable. We don't know which one of these is the true option, but uh, it doesn't really matter that much because well, Antiochus the... suppresses it as soon as he gets there. Oh, okay. So it goes well. And also, I guess the whole point of it is there's some kind of revolt. Yeah, there's some instability. It doesn't really matter whose revolt is, just consolidate who is ruling this part. And doesn't matter who's against you, just, like, make sure they stop getting ideas. Yeah, basically. Just make sure that, especially the area where the official capital is now, you know, Antioch on the Orontes, which we'll call Antioch pretty mm. much every time, is now basically the capital of the empire. You want to make sure your capital isn't besieged by rebels. That's not a good look. Yeah. But Antiochus finally arrives in Antioch, secured the capital. Good. Then he looks further west and he sees that Asia Minor has exploded. Because Fun. with no central authority there, 
everything has gone to chaos. Because far in the west of Macedon, Ptolemy Karaunos made himself king of Macedon. So that's one problem. Second problem is all the tiny independent Greek city-states on the coast of Anatolia that were bugging the Achaemenids since time began, mm. those are now independent again. Ah, fun. Also, there are several half-Macedonian, half-Persian governors that have just basically declared their own kingdoms. There are some places that were half-satrapies, half-submitting to Seleucus that are now fully independent. So it's all kind of a mess. And Antiochus has to deal with all of this in his first year on the job. Well, I mean, if, if he makes it, that'll be a really good part of his resume. If he makes it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so what does he do? So Antiochus starts by looking at all these little states and trying to figure out how to deal with them. Because the problem with, well, one of the problems with Anatolia is that it's mountainous and it has a lot of different easily defensible small areas. Hmm. So if you're trying to just play whack-a-mole with all the little tiny independent city-states, you're going to be there forever. And as soon as you leave one place, there'll be new ones. So it's, it's insane. Yeah. So what Antiochus does is he tries to make friends with all the people he can make friends with in these cities and say, hey, pay me taxes and I'll help you not be attacked by your enemies. How does that sound? You won't be fully my subjects. You can keep your power, but you have to pay something for upkeep. Yes, it's a transaction, you know, it's a strategic relationship. Yeah, basically. So some of those he manages to convince in a nice way. Other people he manages to convince in a not so nice way by basically supporting some rivals who are saying, yeah, we'll pay you taxes if you mm. make me king of this place instead of my brother. And then he's like, yep, that sounds good. I'll do that. And so he manages to somewhat piece Anatolia back together bit by bit. Although it is kind of a mess. Because in Anatolia, he only controls a few regions securely and personally, you know, as part of the empire. Mm -hmm. So there is Cilicia, which is the bit that is connected to Syria and protected by some mountains that Seleucus had already fortified before. It's, you know, a nice, stable place. It's all good. Then he also controls Sardis, which was the old capital of the kingdom of Lydia back in Cyrus's day and the key administrative center of the Achaemenid Empire in Anatolia. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not exactly on the Mediterranean, but it's nearby. And then he controls a thin strip of land that connects Sardis to the rest of the empire. So it's basically one tiny city hanging out on the end of a stick, just far, far away, trying to make sure everything is all right. So that's an issue. But now that Antiochus has managed to sort of consolidate Anatolia, he can go after his father's murderer. Right. Because, you know, that also happened. We haven't That's been able thing, to get yes. to it, but, you know, there was a lot going on. <laughs> We've had to fight our way through half of Asia to get here. Please be patient. I love that. It's like, ah, yes, this is also on the list. Wait a minute. <laughs> this was somehow not a priority. Yes. So Antiochus is going to spend the next few months asking people if they have six fingers on their hand and oh yeah, telling them that he killed their father, prepared to die. That sort My of thing. name is Inigo Montoya. I mean, Antiochus. <laughs> but fortunately for us, Macedon is also kind of chaotic because 
Keraunos is barely legitimate since he only became king because he murdered Seleucus and just decided, hey, I'm king now. Yeah, yeah, not the best claim. And so there's another claimant to the throne. There are two other claimants to the throne, one of which is important. <laughs> I love that you're like, okay, there's two candidates. One of them is actually important. I'm like, ah, yes, okay, so <laughs> this is how it's going. which we care about. The other's like, eh, it's just there. So the non-important one is Pyrrhus of Epirus, who is well, the king of Epirus, and he is important for Roman history. He's very hyped up as a good general. I've never seen it, which is why I'm curious to see what Alexander Standard has to say about him, but Ooh. he's around. He's the guy that brought elephants into Italy and the Romans Ooh. had to face him. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. While the one we have to remember is Demetrius. Nope. <laughs> Nope, not nope, him. Wrong, wrong number. <laughs> is Antigonus II, who is the son of Demetrius, the guy from last episode. Right. So who is have... also the grandson of Antigonus, the important one. <laughs> so we have Antigonus and Antiochus. Yes. <laughs> That's great. That's not going to be confusing at all. I didn't write the script here. That's fair. Next time you should tell the history writers to change the names. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, you say that as, like, haha, it's a joke, it's just the names of people, but, like, as if Greek scholars didn't change the names of people all the time to whatever they thought fit them. Yeah, yeah. I'm researching Parthian history, and that happens a lot, where people are confused what the real name actually is, because eh, the Greeks are just picking something that sounds good. That's ridiculous. Anyway, continuing. Yes. But anyway, so now we have four candidates... For the Macedonian throne, and Antiochus is one of them. Okay. So he's organizing a large fleet to cross over into Europe and take back the throne that his father fought so hard for and mm. reunite the majority of Alexander's empire again. It is at this point in 278 that he receives news of a massive horde invading Macedon. And it is a horde of Celts, or Gauls, as they are called in certain contexts, which have decided to absolutely do one on Macedon. So, good news number one is Karaunos heads north to face these rivals, but he is defeated and killed in battle. So, hooray! Seleucus is avenged and one less candidate for the throne. Yay! We love it. But? So, having seen this, Antiochus says, Oh, great! I'm going to defeat some of Karaunos' ally, former allies, since he's dead, in the north of Anatolia, so that he can make sure that Anatolia is even more secure and even better. In the meantime, the Gauls head into Greece and ravage and burn and pillage, and even manage to sack the sanctuary of Apollo at Delphi. Ooh. No, no, no. They take all the offerings from centuries Ooh. and basically take them, and I'm not sure if this is a legend, but the Romans believed it, they take all this gold and transfer it all the way into Gaul in a lake in Toulouse, where they hide it until a corrupt Roman will take it all eh, in a this, few centuries. Okay, this seems, it seems like a legend since, you know, it ties to whoever this Roman is. Then again... But he did drain a lake to get a lot of money out of it, so somehow it must have gotten in there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yep. interesting. Um, the Greek mythology nerd and me is shaking in their boots, thinking, you don't offend Apollo. You just don't. <laughs> I'm scared. Yeah, especially since, according to legend, Apollo is Antiochus's grandpa. Yeah. 
you know. So there. So while the Gauls are sacking Delphi and Antiochus is sort of fixing up Anatolia before crossing into Europe, he receives a message that says, uh, Sir, sorry to tell you this, but it looks like two massive hordes of Gauls have crossed into Anatolia and are now pillaging the countryside. Ah, So now they are our problem, I see. Yes. And not only that, but all these hordes are hiring themselves as mercenaries to Antiochus's enemies in Anatolia. Great. Lovely. So now everything is all on fire. Again. And Antiochus tries to fight these Gauls for a while. He keeps some sort of stability around. But then guess what happens? The mercenary contract for the Gauls runs out. Ah. And they have nobody to pay them. Yeah, that's never good. So they decide to raid everyone equally. Yeah, of course. As you do. Honestly, like, in that case, that makes perfect sense. You know, they hired them in the first place. They shouldn't have. If you can't pay the people, they're not loyal to you. So. (laughs) Yeah, they're just going everywhere. And in the words of Nandor the Relentless, no, I'm pillaging everyone, you included. (laughs) We do not discriminate when pillaging. (laughs) Yes. So Antiochus spends the next years of his life trying to deal with this absolute mess. So he abandons the idea of Macedon. He says, you know what? I'm having trouble enough governing what I have. It would have been nice to have Macedon, but it's not reasonable. Not worth it. So he organizes and tries to fight in Anatolia. But the problem is that every time he tries to attack a large Gaulish army, they just split up into smaller groups and spread out to the countryside raiding villages. And his big army can't do anything to fight them. You know, you can't just chase every group of five random bandits. You just need to use an army to fight a lot of people. Oh, so they like, they really split up in really small groups. It wasn't just like, oh, now there's two groups or three groups of... No, no, it's like small enough groups that it's unreasonable to try and follow them That they just function as like bandit raid parties, essentially. Yeah, basically. Also, they don't really have a headquarters, so they can just go wherever, and it doesn't really matter. That's really cool. Little interstitial here, but I love seeing how different strategies like work against each other and how the formations and the ways of making war develop to confront one or other depending on, you know, the strategies that the people have come up with and how like, oh, something that worked really well against the people of this area suddenly has nothing to do against the people of this other area. Depending on how you organize your soldiers, the formations that you keep, or like just how your whole army is organized, depending on like, you know, if there are lots of different levels to it and people who answer to other people above them, or if it's more of an equal distribution. Yeah, because I mean, there is no one size fits all solution for everything, you know, it depends on where you are, what your traditions are, what the enemy is doing, it's all very complicated on what actually works from time to time. And I love that the best ones at being an oddball and actually being kind of unstoppable are the Mongols. Because for some reason, whatever the Mongols were doing, just very difficult to stop. Yes, if we ever do a season two, we'll cover them. (laughs) I can't wait. I'm excited, actually. But yeah, so what happens now? Well, Seleucus didn't raise no quitter, so Antiochus decides to Roll up his sleeves, 
and he's going to chase every single damn group of gulls he can find. He doesn't care how small it is. He'll destroy every last one of them. I mean, that's one way to do it, right? They were hoping he would think, oh, this is too much work and we'll never do it. But like, the way to do it is to just go for it, I guess. Start with one and keep going to the next. Yeah, just basically meticulously isolate them and concentrate them more and more and more and more until you can finally have a real battle. Exhausting. And yeah, we're told that sometimes in 275, or some people say recently in 268, it's unclear. Again, this is very badly documented. But no matter what the time is, he manages to gather all of these Gauls into one spot and defeat them in a major battle. Damn. Where the only detail we have is that he used elephants. Oh. Which, if you're a Gaul, pretty weird and terrifying. So I accept that. Is that the only detail we have? Like, no, nothing more? That is the only detail we have. We know that he won. Okay, well, yeah. And there were elephants. The end. Involved at some point. <laughs> yes. But we know that it's a great enough victory that Antiochus is given the epithet Soter, or savior, that wow. we said at the beginning. So, because he saved savior Anatolia from the Gauls. Well, from the local population who were being yeah, raided for that's a decade. Eh. Yeah, and so he takes all these people together and concludes a peace with them. He says, you know what? You can keep the center of Anatolia. Nobody was using it really. It was pretty barren and empty. Make your lives there. Also, from now on, you'll be called Galatians because you're not exactly Gauls anymore. You're in this new place. You're doing new stuff. So, hooray! Peace at last! Where is this geographically? Basically in the middle of Anatolia, right around where Ankara is today. Right. Did we keep the name of the Galatians? Is there I don't anything think to track down? It's definitely called Galatia for... There's a Roman province of Galatia for a right. long time. I'd be surprised if there aren't any derived place names, but that would be interesting to look into. Maybe we can check later. I'm sorry, I didn't mean yes. to, you know, sidetrack. No, definitely an interesting thing to look into. Now that these Gauls are in Galatia, or these Galatians are in Galatia, <laughs> the raids don't really stop, but at least now they have a headquarters so they can't go back to their old tricks again and Antiochus sort of can keep an eye on them and he knows which areas are going to be raided so he can fortify them appropriately. He knows that which areas are going to be safer and which he can keep more laid back. You know, he can organize himself and understand how it goes. But another negative consequence of this whole decade or so of raiding is that a lot of these semi-independent places in Anatolia tend to become more independent. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, for... Many years, they learn that the king can't come to you in time. The Galatians are going to come at you no matter what. So you need to be self-reliant. Yeah. And fortify yourself, have your own self-defense for the city, ensure that you can handle yourself. Which is good for these individual cities, but it's bad for the Seleucid Empire because, well, now these cities don't really rely on you anymore, so why would they need you? Well, I mean, if you didn't get there on time, why would they rely on you, you know, my friend? Like, it's, Yeah, that's basically it's the a, point. Yeah, these groups were very small, but before the strategy paid off, they managed to raid a lot of places, and there we are. But what happened to Macedon, which we were talking about in the first place when all this started? Yeah, you know, the main... You know. Yeah, the, the one that caused all the problems. Well, there were a series of different wars among all the separate candidates, 
And in the end, Demetrius' son, Antigonus Gonatas, became king at last. He defeated the Gauls that remained in Greece and secured a new kingdom of Macedon, and his dynasty would be on the throne until the end of the kingdom. And seeing this new stable situation, Antiochus decides to formally accept that, yes, Antigonus is now king of Macedon. It's fine, I'm not going to fight you for it, it's okay. And he makes an alliance with him by marrying his sister off to Antigonus. So, alliances, good stuff. Nice. But all is not well in the rest of the world. Mm. Because if you remember, last episode, Seleucus claimed all the land of Syria and Palestine, but Ptolemy had taken basically all of Palestine and the south of Syria. In the end, Seleucus had said, it's not worth going to war with you over, but I still claim these lands. Well, now that Ptolemy I is dead and there's Ptolemy II, Antiochus is trying to make plans to take that land back Hmm. and make sure that it's his by right. He's going to try and take it. And this is going to cause the first Syrian war, which, as the name suggests, is only the first of many, many, many Syrian wars. Indeed. Okay, so how did it start? What happened? Well, to start with Ptolemy II, pharaoh of Egypt, Ptolemy, not that Ptolemy, <laughs> had become more and more isolated in recent years because, well, his brother Karaunas had died in Macedon, and now Macedon is actually allied with Antiochus, so he doesn't have many friends in foreign policy. And now that Macedon is stable, Antiochus also married his daughter to the king of Cyrenaica, which was a kingdom to the west of Egypt. So now Ptolemy is surrounded on all sides by enemies, or rather, by allies of Antiochus. Right. Totally different thing. Yeah. (laughs) And also in the meantime, while Anatolia was exploding, Ptolemy had taken advantage of the situation by taking some of the little cities for himself, mostly the ones on the coast, because he has a good fleet. So everything is ready and tensed for a large conflict. And all this boils over when the king of Cyrenaica invades Egypt. And it seems that he hadn't consulted Antiochus on this, because Antiochus was far, far away from the Egyptian border and was in no way ready to start a war. Ah. You know, that's great. That's exactly what you need. should have sent a letter so that, since we're allies, we can collaborate. Seriously? Like, seriously, they did not... Like, get a, give a heads up. Like, hey, maybe, you know, maybe we might be fighting. Yeah. I, I mean, one source says that they were collaborating, but you'd expect Antiochus to have just you know, been next to the border with an army if that was the yeah. case. So, so yeah. yeah might, no, not good planning. Either really bad planning or they weren't actually collaborating. Yeah. I can't believe, like, but like, come on. You have like one job. You'd expect to try, yeah. Maybe it was just like a border raid that got out of hand and it was like, oh, well, I guess we might as well do this. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) Whoops, I guess we're we're fighting now. Oh, whoops. It's war. Yeah. Like that time Switzerland invaded Liechtenstein by accident because they got lost (laughs) in the forest. (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) That was like a few years ago. They sent a nice letter saying, sorry, we didn't mean it. Wait, a few years ago? Like, recently? Like, in the 2000s. (gasps) I thought Switzerland didn't have an army. They have a big army. They have lots of stuff. Oh, yeah, that's true, that's true. That's just how you stay neutral. You just look at everyone intensely and say, don't you dare mess with us. Their strategy is leave me alone or I'll cut you. Yeah. 
So yeah. we're gonna find out. <laughs> yes. But back to the war. Yeah, back to the war. It starts as badly as you would expect it because the army of Cyrenaica invades Egypt, but then there's a rebellion back home in Cyrenaica, so they just have to run back home as soon as they invaded Egypt. Uh, but now it's Antiochus's problem because he's like, well, we declared war, might as well make the best of it. <gasps> oh, that's terrible. So, like, first of all, he wasn't ready, and then once he was pulled into the war, the rest were like, no, nah, just kidding, bye. Your problem now. <laughs> yes, basically. <laughs> So like, ah, damn. Oh no, that's so bad. Yeah. So we're not sure who struck first in Syria, actually. We're not sure if it's Ptolemy who saw this as a collaboration between the two and invaded the Seleucid Empire, or if it was Antiochus who said, oh god, oh god, need to solve this, let's invade Ptolemaic Kingdom. But whatever the case is, they fight in Syria for a while. Again, Terribly documented war, unfortunately, but we find out that the Seleucids had the first victory. So first blood, good job. And the Egyptian army had to retreat out of Syria. And that's all we know. Oh, so oh, great. That's... Yeah. We can extrapolate a few things. So first of all, it looks like it was a very expensive war. Because we have an idea that Antiochus had to get a lot of resources from the eastern provinces to pay for this. So all the Iranian and uh, adjacent areas. Mm -hmm. And the second important thing we know is that in the old Achaemenid tradition of naming an heir before you go to war, Antiochus named his teenage son Seleucus as co-king, just in case. Good, good. You say tradition as if, you know, we had done that always. I mean, you know, the Achaemenids did it. Xerxes mm -hmm. did it. Darius did it. It happens. The good ones. But... Yeah, the good ones did. Alex did not, absolutely. But, you know. Alex didn't We know care. what we think of Alex. Mm. But no matter what the details, in 271, the war ends. First Syrian war over. Who wins? Eh, we don't know. Unclear. It doesn't look like the border changed much. It looks like everybody was just, this war was dumb in the first place when it started. Let's just make peace. Is that fine? Okay, cool. Bye. So, that's the end of the war. This was very underwhelming. <laughs> yes. The other Syrian wars are better. The sixth one I'm especially fond the of. The I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. We're fighting the same more than spit one, of land but... for a century. Oh, goodness. I mean, there's always conflict in the Middle East, and I feel like that has to do just with the geography of it, right? That is It is an unstable an area issue, yeah. by design, sadly. Yeah, and it doesn't have, like, nice, chunky mountain ranges that can be a natural border. It's just relatively open area that you can go through. There aren't any massive rivers like the Danube. Yeah. That area is problematic because no, it's kind of hard to Not naturally defended and also valuable to own. Yeah, so. sort of like Eastern Europe. <laughs> right. No big mountain ranges, but you could just go back and forth, which is why Poland is sad. <laughs> Very fair. Because it's in the middle of everyone. But yeah. So finally, there is peace. For the ah. first time since he became king, Antiochus can just sit down, breathe. For five realize, minutes. Realize, oh wait, I have a diadem. That means I get to rule stuff. Nice. Let's do this. And so he settles down to administer the empire. 
So how does he do that? Well, the main structure is pretty much the old Achaemenid one with satraps governing the different regions of the empire, Ooh, okay. with generals at their side, with the military matters so that, you know, they're not joined into one person. They have separate powers so that nobody can become too strong. Although it looks like the Seleucid system actually had a few more layers because it also had larger vice royalties that reported to the king. Like there was one large section of somebody governing Anatolia, another one of somebody governing Babylonia, another one of somebody governing the eastern satrapies or the upper satrapies as they're called, which is basically everything east of Mesopotamia. Mm -hmm. So that these people could at least coordinate all the subgroups without the king having to run back and forth constantly. The clear danger of this is that, well, these people have an easier time rebelling, but for the time, it seems that everything is going fine. And Antiochus actually followed his father's precedent by appointing his own son Seleucus as co-king in charge of governing the east. So just like Antiochus got his start governing in the east, so is his son Seleucus getting a chance to govern the east as well. The only exception to this whole administrative system is Syria, which became more and more capital region. You know, the capital which was originally around Seleucia and Babylon moves more to the west around Antioch because, well, it's on the Mediterranean. That's an area where there, a lot of the wars are coming from. The Indian front is secure. That's where you want to focus. Hmm. As we saw last time, Syria becomes more and more Hellenized with a large amount of Greek immigrants fleeing the wars in Europe and the barbarian invasions and everything going upside down. And they head over to Syria and sort of populate the new cities that Seleucus had founded a few decades earlier and ensure that, well, these new little Greek city-states pop up. Because they are sort of constructed like the independent city-states back in continental Greece, like, you know, Athens, Sparta, Thebes, all those friends. But they have a key difference here, because these cities are designed, they are not just growing organically. Right. And they're designed by the king to have a fortified citadel not at the center of the city, like in organically grown mm -hmm. cities, but at the edge of it. Oh, so next to a wall? Yeah, basically ne next to the walls, you have thicker walls and a citadel. Huh. So this is essentially done in case the city tries to become too independent. Because if the city tries to rebel and the citadel is in the center, then they can just besiege it and it's hard for a royal force to save the mm -hmm. citadel. If the citadel is on the border of the city, well, then when the royal army arrives, they can just refill the citadel from outside and they can last forever. Right. So this is a good insurance behind the cities becoming too independent, which you know, is pretty clever. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it seems to have worked very well and we have barely any reports of city rebellions against the empire throughout its whole history. It'll just become a problem in the future when the cities grow too big that they just outstrip swallow, their original yeah, design. They swallow but, the yeah. citadel again. Yeah. And also overall, culturally and religiously, the new Seleucid system is relatively hands-off with significant delegation of power to the regions where the strength of the central army ensured that everybody was kept in line. Hmm. Which sort of reminds me a bit of very a bit of Cyrus's old empire where he just basically took the pre-existing structure and said, you keep doing your thing, I'm just your king now. Yeah, so that was okay. sort of similar. Yeah. And well, speaking of Persia, while Antiochus was so preoccupied in the West, there were certain things happening in Persia. 
What they are is difficult to say, and I will discuss at length in like 10 episodes. Oh, okay. But it seems that there was a local Persian dynasty gaining some local power around Persepolis. Mm -hmm. And what is unclear is how independent are they? Because certain scholars think that it is basically a new independent kingdom that just was a vassal of, of the Seleucid Empire. While others say that, no, 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 at this point, there were just like local priests with a certain amount of power in the city and nothing beyond that. Hmm. But anyway, we'll look at that in a while. Also, if we're looking further to the east, we have some more friendly contact with the Moria Empire. Because we remember Chandragupta gifted Seleucus those 500 elephants. Well, now it looks like Antiochus is in friendly contact with his son, Bindusara Maurya. So son with son. Yes. The two sons apparently get along well enough. And I love uh, that this could have been a really interesting friendship, actually. Like, cordial... That could have been really cool. I mean, we also have... Or rather, we don't have... We know <laughs> of... Uh, we know of diplomats of Antiochus going off to the Moria court in India and describing all the customs and writing travelogues mm. about it. Okay. Problem is, we don't conserve much of them, which oh, is terrible. But sad. Eh, yeah. But we know it was done, which... We know it was done. We know that they were in contact and, you know, of course, trade and all that was definitely going on. I really like this. I like when we talked about it in the other episode and I like it now. Just the two rivals who, like, admire each other end up actually just being like, okay, let's, let's be friends now, actually. Let's just, like, help each other and collaborate. And it goes so far as to, like, maybe actually develop in a cordial friendship and like have their sons also continue you know yeah like, that's nice that's that's really cool this yeah, is not a, like this is just stuff. me speculating and being like oh this would make for a good story not that actually is what happened i don't know. i mean they're not declaring war on each other which is more than you can say for anyone else <laughs> around <laughs> antiochus so that's good if we ever make some extra episodes on the morias we'll hear more about that let us know <laughs> if you'd be interested But yeah, so what we have is a letter of Bindusara writing to Antiochus. And in the letter, he asks for figs, sweet wine, and a philosopher, please. A philosopher? Philosopher. Okay, sorry. (laughs) Not a velociraptor. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I figured. You never know. With ancient sources, it's entirely possible. Is it? I... Not sure yeah. that the name Velociraptor had been, you know, ad- adopted. <laughs> but Antiochus replies to this letter, sending all the gifts that Bindusara had asked for. He sends him large chests of figs, large amounts of sweet wine. Mm. But he just also writes a note saying, Sorry, I can't really sell you a philosopher because it's illegal to sell those. I'm sorry. We're, you can try and invite one if you want. Uh, I mean, we they do trade in people, but not philosophers. <laughs> Only some kind of people are okay to sell. Yes. Come on, don't be a brute. <laughs> yes. What are you, savages sell philosophers? No, we sell other people, not philosophers. <laughs> <laughs> I love this so much. I also love that this person was like, I would like to hire a philosopher for my court to like help with the matters of knowledge and such and such. But it's not like, I'd like to hire someone. It's more like, 
hey, can you send me one of those? <laughs> when, you know, Do you have like, any spare philosophers? Exactly. Yeah, I'd like one, please. Like, since we're asking for gifts, like, I, I'd like uh, some wine. I'd like some of that nice bread you have, a bit of rice, uh, maybe a, a couple liquor, you know, hard liquor things, um, some nice fabrics, and one or two philosophers. <laughs> Get me a two-pack of philosophers if you can, if it's worth it. Yeah, 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 just, you know, two-for-one kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, so poor Bindusara doesn't get his philosopher, but gets wine and figs, and, you know, that's probably fine. (laughs) So Antiochus continues ruling his empire. He goes to Babylon, he visits the city, and supposedly he lays the bricks of the new foundation of the temple to Marduk, the one that... Xerxes supposedly destroyed right. centuries ago and that Seleucus had given the money for. Antiochus is there at the official dedication ceremony. He apparently makes the first brick and puts it down. Ooh. And how do we know that? Well, mm. we know that because just like for Cyrus, Antiochus also has a cylinder. Oh, fun. We have an Antiochus cylinder that he uses for the dedication of this new temple. Using the old echoes of Sargon of Akkad... The first emperor of the world. Oh, yes. The cylinder is written in Akkadian. Oh, of course. And has all the usual formulas you could hope for. The title of king of the universe for Antiochus. <laughs> oh, yeah, king true. of the lands. <laughs> all of those good things. It's never not funny. Honestly. I can feel the aliens looking at the earth being like, what the <laughs> hell? It's like, wait, I just feel like I'm being ruled by a Greek man. <laughs> this is weird. Unfortunately, this is the last cylinder of its kind to be produced that we have. There's so much fun, though. Sad, yes. If you want to find more of them, you have to go back in time. We're not getting any more in the future. Sadness. So, goodbye, title king of the universe. The best we'll have is great king or king of kings. Although we have a good title in the Sasanian period, but we'll have to get there. Oh, I'm excited to find out. (laughs) No king of the universe until we get to Miss Universe. That's very sad. Yes, basically. <laughs> Bring it back. Yes. Miss Universe will now be transformed into Queen of the Universe. I Which, mean, badass. You know, it's a lot nicer, yeah. Let me tell they you. They should all have little Acadian cylinders made for when they win. I'd love that. <laughs> Could you imagine? If anybody knows the producers, call them. That would them. be so nerdy. I Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> Uh, good stuff. But yeah, unfortunately, Antiochus' cylinder isn't too exciting in its oh. contents. It's oh. just a dedication saying, Hi, I'm Antiochus, king of the universe. I built this temple. <laughs> you know, put me. the first brick. <laughs> and also saying, Please, the gods, protect me and my co-king and son, Seleucus. The end. Okay, okay. It's fine. Enough. But, now that there's foreign peace, we need to have domestic strife. Ah, of course. There has to be something going on. Come on. Yeah, because in 267, two events happen. First of all, Antiochus takes a second wife called Nisa. Mm-hmm. This is fairly common, right? Yes. And then he executes his son and heir, Seleucus. <gasps> uh, uh, mm. Excuse me? <laughs> yes. Can you repeat that? I, d- I might have not, like, understood correctly. Yeah. So, co-king Seleucus... Executed. So, King, dear who had, darling dad, like, who had learned so much, who had done so much, and was doing well. Correct me if I'm wrong. 
Who you have invested like so much time and effort and money into like you know educating him and like preparing him to be a good king one day. Yeah. You just... Also, is your son? Well, you know, I mean, apart from that, because <laughs> of course, but like we've also established that like you know family relationships eh, sometimes don't sure, matter messy. that much. But like, I what? <laughs> yeah. Well, the sources don't give us a reason, <laughs> which is an I, issue. Uh, I'm so yeah. confused. But yeah, so the only real thing we can think of that, you know, why you would kill your son and heir that you've invested so much in raising and training and all that is that Seleucus probably rebelled against his father and tried to take the throne. Probably. I love that we're like, yeah. maybe this happened because otherwise this makes no sense. Yeah, it's very unclear. And it's also possible that Seleucus resented not having more authority because when Antiochus was a young prince, his father gave him a lot of authority, gave him a position in the army, gave him more power. But Seleucus wasn't given any authority in the army. He wasn't made a co-commander with Antiochus, so maybe he was starting to get impatient and annoyed. And that could be the case. Still, though, that doesn't, like, unless he actually rebels... This doesn't yeah, I mean, really... That's, it's also just really hard to think of, you know, why else would you kill him? Because, you know, either why, there was... Wh- this seems like the yeah. wrong move. Something must have happened, right? Yeah, it can't have been for nothing. I mean, Antiochus doesn't seem like a guy who just snaps and decides to execute his son. He seems like a relatively level-headed guy. Yeah. Yeah, like so I mean, far we haven't had any... he did try to starve himself when he couldn't marry his stepmom, but, you know, that's a different uh, thing. Well, he was a young lad... <laughs> Full of, you know, longing and hormones. I don't know. But, like, <laughs> yeah, if, I would be less confused if he had made irrational decisions before, you know, and, like, just mm-hmm. had been very hot-headed or was famous for Yeah, like, I could believe this about Alexander. Yeah, I yeah. I could see Alexander just randomly killing his oh, son. Oh, sure. Alexander would do like it, it. In, in a heartbeat <laughs> if, like, his son had looked at him the wrong way. For sure. Yeah, I can see that. Because he did Antiochus not want to give up feel power. the type. But I'm... Again, so confused. I can't really make sense of it. So I hope you have something, some kind of explanation for me. Or at least we'll get to see what happens, because I don't know. Yeah. Fortunately for Antiochus, he went by the old rule of have an heir and a spare. Because (laughs) now that Seleucus is dead, he has another son called Antiochus II, Ah. who is his new heir. Hooray. I'm sure he's not worried at all. Yeah. Although something that works, that sort of fits within the rebellion story, is that Antiochus didn't make Antiochus the second co-king. He just kept him as official heir, but you're not ruling anything. Okay. So he didn't really give him any power with which to maybe raise an army or something. So, like, this suggests that maybe he learned from some mistake. Yeah, maybe he was... No longer so trusting of giving half his power to his son and doing that. So he said, okay, you're the heir. When I die, you can get my power, but no sooner. Interesting. So in the last years of his reign, Antiochus moves about founding a lot of cities. Because that's the Macedonian national pastime. I'm sorry, I'm going to tell that to my Macedonian <laughs> friends. <laughs> yeah, tell them. Tell them all. Build your own Macedonian city. What, isn't this a national sport? What? Yeah, of I course. Thought, 
I thought you guys when they just... set down a tent, they need to name it with their own name and found a city around there. Beautiful. Yes. But yeah, so Antiochus builds a chain of little cities connecting Sardis, which is the administrative center in Anatolia, mm-hmm. to the rest of the empire. So there's a series of fortified cities protecting the royal road, ensuring that, yes, Anatolia is under control. Even if we have weird raids, we can still hold everything together. So that's nice. But if he's going to live, it's not going to be in peace ah, at the end. Of course. Because... Well, he's been his whole life from drama to drama, from issue to issue. So, like, it would be a bit... I feel like he just doesn't feel quite in his element if things are going right. <laughs> yeah, right? he needs something to go wrong. So, what happens is there is a succession dispute in a tiny Greek city on the Aegean coast called Pergamon, which you oh. might want to remember. Right. Pergamon, the one from which the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. Ah, I knew that name seemed familiar. Yes. So, Antiochus goes there, tries to intervene to maintain control of the city, because if you remember, he controls a lot of these little cities by friendly rulers, and if there's a succession mess, he wants to make sure that a ruler friendly to him is in control. Of course. So yeah. he sends the army, goes to fight. But, to surprise, Antiochus was defeated. Oh. Outside Pergamon. <gasps> That's not great. What do you think he does? Uh, uh, apart from run away because you're defeated? Um, <laughs> a few days after being defeated. Ah. Well, do we have an army? Like, how badly were we defeated? Based on the sources, we were defeated badly, but it, we still have an army. Do we just try again? Like, no. That, that, that would. I don't. <laughs> Antiochus decides that he is old and sick and tired. <laughs> And he has had enough of this crap. Honestly, very fair. Do whatever, guys. Very fair. I respect that. I'm glad glad that he gave it a try. He got defeated and I was like, well, if I'm getting defeated now, I guess this is my call. Goodbye, friends. I don't want to... Yeah, it's one dumb city in Anatolia. I really don't care enough. (laughs) Let's just go. That's very funny. In the end, this finally leads us to Antiochus's death. Ah, well, yeah. He was old and tired and sick. How did he die? We have two options. One is he was old and tired and sick and just died of natural causes. Another option, which comes from a fragment of a Greek author, which is a mess and also... Why were you selling this? Doesn't specify which Antiochus it is. It just says Antiochus died this way. It doesn't specify Antiochus the first, Antiochus Soter. It's just... (laughs) Yeah, because why would you have to? Antiochus died this way. It's just the one Antiochus. What do you mean? Yeah, because, you know, Hellenistic kings have like two names between them. Why should we distinguish them? Eh. Mm. But according to this other version, on the 1st or 2nd of June of 261, Antiochus died while fighting off some Galatian raiders. So, yeah, just died fighting raiders, the end. Eh, but maybe. Might not be this Antiochus. But maybe. Otherwise, it, it could have just been... different. Could have been some other Antiochus. There's lots of Antiochuses. Truly. And in Anatolia, no less. So, so hmm. maybe died violently. Maybe just had enough of everything and was like, yep, this is my call. See you. Jumping off the planet. <laughs> I'm out of here. Bye, losers. Okay, bye. Yes. <laughs> So there we go. What are your thoughts on Antiochus the First, Serial? Excited for more Antiochuses? Uh, Where's the plural of Antiochus? Antiochai? Antiochoi? Because it's Greek, I guess. 
still weird. Entire codes? Possibly. <laughs> um eh, it, I mean I mean I mean it was interesting. I feel like we left off in a bit of a mess. And so the beginning was quite interesting with how he got to, you know, calm everything down, reorganize, yeah. reunite parts of the empire. It could have been way worse, right? So like he, he had a lot on his plate and he actually rose to the occasion and did really well. And that was very, very mm-hmm. impressive. He even managed to like, uh, I mean, I was going to say he even managed to avenge his father, but like that kind of just happened like, you know, on its own. Yeah, his father uh, <laughs> got avenged. Yeah, yeah. which great. Good. One more to cross off the list. And uh, so up to that, yeah. I mean, good job just keeping things like going worse than they should. Of course, it wasn't perfect, but like the situation is mm-hmm. always, there's always something going on and like, I feel like he did well. By the end, I'm still very confused <laughs> at, at, at things, especially yeah, if he's getting ki- old, but then like, yeah, yeah, kill your heir when you're also like getting old yourself and you're, you know, like, do you mm. care that much if he gets to replace you? I mean, you care if he marches up to you and executes you. Yeah, I don't know how far in his rule this was. Like it was pretty far in, but it, you know it was like f- five to ten years from the end. I don't have the okay. correct number here, but yeah. I guess he couldn't. You know, he wasn't have at known death's when he was door. Die, and was right? just yeah, 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 exactly. So it wasn't. Yeah, okay. The whole getting defeated and just being like, I don't care enough. I relate. <laughs> I relate very much. You only yes. have this much energy, you know. So, um. Yeah, overall, I mean, it hasn't been the most exciting episode, but, like, it it was good. I'm impressed. You know, it wasn't a disaster. Which, honestly, after the things that have been happening ever since (laughs) Alexander died, uh, great. Good It definitely beats the Alexander to Philip III succession, so, yeah. But, like, almost anything beats that. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Okay, so let's rate our boy. First category is final moments. How interesting was his death? It was yeah. either die of old age or maybe be killed by Galatian raiders. Either way, eh, zero. Uh, zero? I'm giving him one point for the maybe being killed by raiders. <laughs> one point for the inconclusive, but possibly we don't know. Yes, <laughs> from the tiny Greek fragment that says, yeah, maybe he did. Still not that interesting of a death. Even if that was nah, true. We've had but a I lot guess the fact ones. that there's a debate yeah. is something. Yeah, it's more than just nothing. Okay, so with a 1 and a 0 for final moments, he gets a 0.5 out of 10. Next category is battle hardness. How good was he at fighting and wars and all that? Ooh, um... He had a lot to do. So let's recap his battle hardness CV. So he started by being a cavalry commander in his father's army under Seleucus during the whole Wars of the Successors and all that. Later on, he sort of stabilized the frontier with the steppe in the east as a prince. Then when he became king, he managed to sort of stabilize Anatolia, not entirely militarily, but partly through diplomacy and military. Mm -hmm. Then when the Gauls came through, he systematically tried to defeat every tiny little group he could find and funnel them into one battle. Actually, that is extra points, if anything, because of how painstakingly annoying that must have been. He's doing it the hard way, and he still did it, so... 
yeah, just spending years trying to do all this, and he actually succeeded, so that's nice. Then, as another part, he fought an inconclusive war with Ptolemy II in Syria. No real clear mm. boundary changes there. It was fine, I guess. So those are mostly positives in the early part of his reign. Negatives come on towards the end when he tries to attack Pergamon uh, yeah. and reestablishes authority, but he fails and he just gives up because he's tired. And then he is maybe killed in battle with some uh, Galatians. So that's possible. I think it's reasonably impressive. It's nothing extraordinary, but I respect him. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, he did well, in my opinion. He's not going to be in, like, the top ten of all history, you know, military generals, but, like, it did well. competent. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, the battle that he lost at Bergamon, I respect that. (laughs) you know that happens sometimes it just the man was don't care enough so yeah i think i'm gonna aim for a six i think it's better than average but you know nothing crazy he didn't conquer a whole new empire but stabilizing is a really hard job so yeah i think he deserves credit for that what are you thinking about yeah no i agree i agree with you six yeah okay so with a nice sounds good six and a six he gets a 12 out of 20 for battle hardness Next category is scheminess. How good was he at plots and manipulation? Uh, eh. <laughs> I don't know if you want to give him scheminess points for starving himself to marry his stepmom. <laughs> I, I don't know if that is a scheme. <laughs> I, I mean, that is hilarious, but um, not really that much of a scheme. It's not like it doesn't require secrecy or wits, yeah. or it's just yeah. like. Well, if you don't do this, I'm going to stop breathing. (laughs) I'm going to hold my breath until you buy me an ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, not much. Uh, Scheminess, otherwise, he... I don't know if you want to put it in scheminess, the marriage alliances he has with Macedon and Cyrenaica. It's not scheming. It's not super scheming. It's just strategy. Above board. But like, you know, yeah. Like it wasn't done in secret or anything. Yeah, and then Schemi, again, another maybe is killing Seleucus. You know, we don't know what the circumstances of that were. That is more shock factor, honestly. I don't... That I'm still, like, quite shocked by, but it's not Schemi, because, like, what was the purpose of this? Yeah. Yeah, can't think of much, really. why? (laughs) Why? Why did you do that? Why? (laughs) Poor Antiochus. Yeah, so Scheminess, I think, zero. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's no no justifying a one. Okay, with a zero and a zero, Antiochus gets a zero out of 20 for scheminess. Sorry. Next category is shock factor. How shocking was he? What terrible things did he do? What surprising things kill did he do? Kill his son! Why did he kill his son? Yeah! <laughs> All that. Yeah, I think his two main shock factors are marrying stepmom and killing son. Yeah. Because marrying stepmom... I guess, hormonal teenager. His stepmom was 20 years old, so, I mean, that's yeah understandable. Hot lady, but also shocking in the way he went about it, you know, like... Yeah, definitely. <laughs> dude, just, you know... It wasn't like a dignified, please, father, no. this is happening. It was no, more like, no. ah, I'm going to die if you don't do this. 
Yeah, very pathetic. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> eh, doesn't make him look too good. No, not at all. And then the mysteriously killing his son because I, reasons. That, I, just what is going on? I guess I will be wondering about this forever. Unless somebody discovers a nice piece yeah, to of be, history I was going to say, it. to be quite fair, it's probably because we do not have the context because it's not the first time that a father murders a son or a son murders a father like this happens all the time yeah but i guess since we are it just seems to come out of nowhere and seleucus so far had done very well and you know there's yeah, nothing there was against no him reports of anything wrong. it's just like oh yeah by the way suddenly this happened oh ah i see okay yeah hopefully we find new sources in those libraries in pompeii that you could read with high tech which would be cool Ah, this is exciting. But yeah, so shock factor is... I don't think it's the highest ever, but I'm I'm not going low either. No, that was Dario. What are your thoughts? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Good old Darius the Great. And Alexander. Yeah, Alexander probably more. Darius had the scheminess, but... Yeah, Darius had high scheminess, not shock factor. Good point. Yeah, Yeah, Alex is the most shocking. But yeah, what are you thinking for Antiochus? I'm in the middle with a large range i'm trying to narrow it down not that shocking i guess i'd say at five probably yeah that's what i was thinking too because it's two separate things they're both good but not incredible so yeah okay so five we're very matchy so with a five and a five antiochus gets a 10 out of 20 for shock factor congratulations Next category is Eren Shine. How good was he for the Empire in general and Iran in particular? Okay, so uh, he did a reasonably good job, I think. So first of all, he managed to stabilize the west of the Empire after Seleucus was murdered. So that's good. He managed to build up a lot of cities on the border with the steppe and also in the middle of Anatolia to protect the roads connecting it to the rest of the Empire. He managed to defeat the Galatians who were just raiding everywhere and sort of localize the problem. Yeah. He managed to defend successfully in Syria from the Ptolemies, which was all right. He managed to conclude some positive alliances with Macedon and Cyrenaica. He kept up the good relationship with the Maurias in India. Yeah, good, good. I like that. (laughs) And he's renovating stuff in Babylon. He has a cylinder for himself. He's renovating temples. True. Overall, just settling a lot of Greeks in the the new cities that have been built. So that's all quite positive. On the negative, he lost Pergamon in the end. He didn't manage to reclaim Macedon that his father had technically owned. Yeah, we lost that forever, huh? Yeah, that's gone. Oops. He also drew a lot of resources from Iran because that area wasn't at war. So that's who's paying for the wars in the West. Yeah. So that's not ideal. I don't know if you want to put it here, but again, he killed his chosen heir and trained heir in exchange for another one who hadn't been given authority. Not great. So that's not great for the succession. Yeah, that's very, yeah, that's true. I'd say his reign is good, not great. Yeah. I'm hovering between a six and a seven, personally. Yeah, honestly... Like, of course, we're coming from a period of lots of instability. So, like, anything other than instability is great, but I wouldn't go higher than a six. No more than a six, you're saying? Well, 
again. See, you said that, and I was like, <laughs> well, things are not terrible. They could be. So yeah, I forget what we gave previous. We gave Salukas an eight, but he did a lot. Who else got a six? Let me. Yeah, who got a six is Cambyses, who conquered Egypt and married his sisters and sort of messed up the succession in the Achaemenid Empire. Hmm. We haven't yet given a seven, which is so. Oh no, actually, you gave a seven to Xerxes the first. Ah. So there's your yardstick. I gave him an eight, to be fair. So I think I'd. Yeah, no, I think that sort of convinced me to give Antiochus a six. I think. Yeah. Also, because he is—he is basically paying this with Iranian money. He isn't really yeah, yeah, yeah. giving them many advantages. So, I think that just sort of pushes him down from the six and a half to a six. Fair. You also going for six? Yep. So with a six and a six, he gets a twelve out of twenty for Aaron Shine, which is respectable. Next category is face of faces, where we get to find out what this person looks like. And we have some coins. I will show you his coins once when he's young and once when he's old. So you get to see his transformation, which is kind of funny. Excellent. But I need to draw him first. Yes, you draw him and you can see what to do. Okay, so Serial has finished their drawing and let me pick it up so we can see it. Nice. Well, first of all, I absolutely love the horse here. It is, it yes, is glorious and it has the best face. It's wonderful. Good horse. You're welcome. So let me describe to you, listeners, what is happening here. So we have Antiochus in armor. He has a nice shield with a big Seleucid anchor on it. He's riding this beautiful horse with a horizontal crest on its forehead. Nice face guard. And Antiochus is there with his helmet plume behind him, and a shadow covers his eyes, and he is saying, I'm too old for this shit. because Antiochus does not care that Pergamon is there, he does not care that he doesn't get to own it, just wants to go home, the man is tired. Yeah, it's been a lot. This is really good. I love how the armor ended up looking, it's... Very impressive. Everybody, hey, look it up I on our website. Used some kind of reference for the armor this time. So it's not just Hooray! like, uh, I don't know what the clothes look. It's, you know. <laughs> That's nice. So there we go. That is Serial's Antiochus. Now let me show you what the coin Antiochus is. So there are two coins, young Antiochus to the left, old Antiochus to the right. So Serial, please describe... The oh, of this oh, this is so good! I know! Oh, I wish I had known this before, then I would have based my drawing on this. It's so good. Uh, really cool profile. I'm a big it's fan. A nice profile. So we have two coins, both of them with a head on profile. The first one is young Antiochus with a diadem on his short curly hair, very Greek statue style, like close to the head, tight mm-hmm. curls. Long, very straight nose. He's just very Hellenistic overall. And deep sunken eyes. And a strong chin. And powerful neck. Lots of detail, honestly, for being on a coin, especially. These are really good coins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The second one is a bit more faded, but we can see a similar profile, also with the diadem and the curls. An older Antiochus with wrinkles around his nose and his mouth. Still sunken eyes and a similar nose. Maybe a little bit bigger, but you know. I like that his ears and nose got bigger and you can tell. Yeah, exactly. 
and a bit of a less pronounced jawline, I would say. Sure. This is very. I I like this a lot. I'm, and it's it is of the period, I assume. Yeah, it's he is the one minting these coins. So yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna. I have to go really high for these. I really because yeah. I also like the fact that there's two of them at like two different times and like they actually yeah, resemble him. Fun. Of course, I don't know what he actually looked like, but like there's I mean, a change this looks in like them. A person. A, you can yeah, tell yeah, exactly. that it's not ideal. It's a little bit stylized, but it's definitely someone that you could recognize. Yeah, I can imagine meeting this guy on the street and saying, "Oh, yeah, hi. yeah, yeah." Old Mr. Antiochus from across the street. I really like. I'm trying to find a reason not to give it a 10. Uh, I'm also going quite high. Why not a 10? I think it's just a coin is my not a 10. Like, it's no impressive face of yourself on the side of a mountain. It's no super impressive statue. It's just your face in a coin, which is fine, I guess. I like it. I think it's pretty good. I'm in 8 territory, but... um... Yeah, I think an eight is good. We're just just to hold on. It's nice. It's nothing extraordinary. It's well made, well conserved, but I really like it. You can I give mean, it a ten if you fun. want. It is just it is you. just coins for I guess, but it's a good portrait. And like I can't imagine what the guy looked like, which is really cool. I guess I will go for a nine, just because ten okay. would have to be something like truly astounding, but. Yeah, fair. Yeah, I mean, 10 was Seleucus's bust, which was great, and it was cool, yes. and it was the whole stat. That, that was nice. I Coins. believe I gave a 10 to Alexander the Great. You gave a 10 to Alexander the Great and Seleucus. Yes, those are the two 10s, and then you gave 9s right, to right. Darius and Xerxes the first. Because Alexander, for example, like, we can see the whole, like, how his... The perception of him changed and got like stylized over the years, and how it became an icon, essentially, like yeah, a fashion icon. So, like... You know, it deserved, yeah. Okay, so with an 8 and a 9, Antiochus has a 4.3 out of 5 for Face of Faces. Next category is lengthiness. How long do you think this man ruled? We're only counting his personal rule, not when he was coking with his father, Seleucus, because then, well, Seleucus was in charge. Well, the thing is, I kind of cheated or, you know, you spoiled (laughs) me that he must have died at around 63 or so. Yes, so not more than 63 years. (laughs) and he only came into power after his father died (laughs) murdered but he was also retired yeah so going to say 30 years maybe 40 30 years no you're actually overestimating him by quite a bit he actually ruled 20 years from 281 to 261 so he he only got to start ruling when he was like 40 yeah, he was oh, he was an okay. adult at the, at the point. You know, he, again, Seleucus uh, yeah. was in his 70s well, I, when he died. Excuse me, I, I thought it would be like when he was 30 or like maybe 20-something. That's also an adult. Yeah, that's fine, but also a small adult. <laughs> <laughs> Not at the time. Okay, so with 20 years, divide that by 10. That gives us two out of five points for lengthiness. So we're there now for the final scores, which is... An impressive and respectable 40.8 out of 100 for Antiochus I, which makes him... Let me see. One, two, three. That would make Antiochus the ninth most scored king of our list of 22. So, 
you know, middle of the pack. I think he is markedly better than all of the middle Achaemenids. Mm. You know, the Darius the second, Artaxerxes the second, Artaxerxes the first, all that. But yeah, he isn't exceptional up to, you know, a Cyrus or a Xerxes, but he is close. Which leads us to the final question, which is to say, is he interesting enough, stabilizing enough, inexplicable, action-y enough to be called a Shahan Shah, or is he just a Shahanna? I wasn't that impressed. Yeah, I think he was... It was okay. <laughs> yeah, I think he was okay. Yeah, it might be a source problem like we had with a lot of other people. Maybe if we knew more about him, we would give him a higher score, but we would mm. give him a shot and shot. But I think he's just a solid ruler, which you need when you're living in the time. But yeah, there's no legendary quality about it. It's just, you know, he's a good king that did a good job. Yeah, I mean, listen, yeah. he wasn't bad. Like, we've given him fairly high scores and things, just eh. Yeah, so I'm sorry, Antiochus, but you won't be joining your father in the Paradise Gardens. You can join baby Alexander IV in the desert oh. and tell him, hey, kid. I mean, it gets better, kind of. <laughs> well, but also, it? you didn't really have a chance. Yeah. So there we go. That is the end of episode 22, Antiochus I Soter. Hope you enjoyed it and will join us next time for Antiochus II. Find out what his nickname is and if he's qualified to rule or if he just messes Since everything nobody... up. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Anyway, <laughs> join so, us yeah. next week. I'll take care until then and we'll see you very soon. Yeah, have a good week and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.